and welcome to a Friday the 13th edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, show me the numbers, infrastructure division, and gun sanctuaries. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor, Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up, census. The 2020 census had relatively good news for Iowa. We people. We're more diverse, and we didn't lose a congressional seat. Now let the guessing game let the guessing games begin. Uh, already this morning, I've seen people, you know, sharing maps of what congressional districts could look like. Um, but the, the real question is how the Legislative Services Agency will draw the lines that determine the fate of our congressional delegation and state legislators. Uh, nearly 80% of the growth was in the four largest counties, Oak, Lynn, Scott, and Johnson. Um, if you look at the numbers, uh, the increase in Hispanic and Black numbers, it, it's equal to about 75% of the statewide growth. Um, Anybody have any thoughts about, you know, sort of looking at these numbers, what it means for Iowa or their community uh, where you live? I'll say I was um, sort of surprised, but not really surprised to see that Blackhawk County, which is obviously, you know, one of the state's bigger counties, um, not grow at all. Um, that's kind of surprising to see. Um, I don't know necessarily that I was expecting large growth. I think I was more just expecting like incremental growth at least. Um, but to not really see the needle move at all is kind of surprising. Yeah, that was a surprise to me too. It's, I think, like the fifth or sixth largest county in the state, but it actually lost like, what, 50 people. Um, it's yeah. a university community, a strong industrial base there. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, and, it, and it runs counter to everything else we've seen where the urban areas gained um, while the uh, rural areas lost. Um, you know, one of the things I, I looked at was if you look at the growth in those largest counties, um, you know, 61,000, almost 62,000 people in Polk County, that's like two uh, Iowa House seats and a Senate district that Polk County could pick up. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, Dallas County, which was the fastest growing counties, it's 33,000 people. That's equivalent to a house district there in a suburban, uh, you know, county. Um, Lynn and Johnson County, the growth uh, between those two counties would be probably another house, maybe another Senate district. Um, so, I mean, what we've been talking about, uh, you know, uh, over the past months, uh, in, in anticipation of these numbers, um, yeah, we could see a more urban, suburban legislature, although not, um, I mean, it's it's incremental growth in, in those areas. Um, and I guess the question then becomes what impact that has uh, on the legislature. Yeah, I think if you're not seeing, I mean, specifically for House District 1, if you're not seeing that growth in Blackhawk County, it <clears throat> probably means you're not seeing that growth in, in the Democratic Party. Um, so I would think that at least that would bode well for Ashley Hinson keeping her seat. Um, even if there's some slight moving around of counties, I wouldn't anticipate that she would pick up any more um, bigger counties necessarily. I think it would probably just 
behoove her to see Blackhawk County stay flat. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the party registration, Ted, um, yeah. that's probably good news for her. All of the congressional districts had some increase, although the, the fourth district, I think it was like less than 1% growth uh, in, in Western Iowa. So um, yeah, uh, which I guess really isn't surprising. Um, it's a pretty rural area. Um, well, of course, with 68 counties losing population, um, I, you know, I think the implications there are those uh, House and Senate districts are going to get bigger. Um, we could see some Republican primaries next June. Um, Todd, uh, redistricting seems to sort of always be followed by turnover in the legislature. I would expect that 2022 will be no different, um, but with a lot, perhaps a number of Republican primaries, uh, if if incumbents, you know, decide to duke it out rather than reach some sort of a gentleman's agreement that one of them retire or move. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's what happens. I mean, they'll they'll find themselves, some of them in the same district when the dust settles, and yeah, some will, you know. We'll maybe decide that that's they've been in the legislature long enough and don't want to have a, a family feud with one of their colleagues or <clears throat> it's it's you know <clears throat> excuse me sometimes they move you know mm-hmm. maybe they decide that you know the, the next county over is just as good as the one that they live in so okay. um and it's you know it's interesting the the you see these urban gains and i mean those are in the, in the big four counties and those are probably good for democrats but in some of these other counties that are sort of that we regard as more urban than rural, where they might still be holding some seats. If they didn't grow or much or, or grow much, you may see these larger districts that Democrats will be the Democratic incumbent might be having to, uh, you know, campaign more for for more rural votes in their district than maybe what they saw before. So that could that could be trouble for some of those Democrats in your you know Mason City, Charles City. Mm-hmm. Places like that, where their districts may end up becoming more rural after after this round of census counts. Tom, Scott County posted uh, growth, but some of the counties around it uh, not so much. Um, and I don't know if if you've had time to think about what that might mean for people representing Clinton County uh, and, and you know some of those neighboring counties. Um, I really haven't to, to be honest with you, but, uh, you know, I, I guess what I would say about that, I would probably, you know, echo Todd, you know, you probably have, um, some Democrats in those areas now that, um, are going to have to, um, um, campaign for, for more rural votes than they, they typically would. Um, you know, in the past they may have, um, been able to rely on, you know, strong, strong democratic support in, you know, Clinton, and now they're probably going to have to um, go out and reach out to, to some more of these um, urban areas um, and try and um, find independents or um, kind of moderate Republicans that they might be able to sway over to their side. If, if the increase uh, among, in some of these um, outlying areas or sort of the rural counties, if the growth that they're seeing is in the minority communities and, and you know immigrants, 
that might give Democrats some advantage there. But um, overall, I mean, the growth in rural areas has, I mean, there hasn't been any <laughs> in most of the counties. Uh, so uh, it's going to be pretty tough uh, to make gains. Uh, interesting. I talked to Dennis Goldford, a political science professor at Drake yesterday, and and I mean, he was went on about how Democrats can't get the time of day in rural Iowa that, uh, you know, people basically are saying, you know, once you say you're a Democrat, they're not listening anymore. Um, and, and I'm not sure uh, if Democrats can crack that um, and talk about, um, you know, issues that matter to rural Iowans, uh, because for a lot of people, it seems to be more cultural than economic um, the way they're they're choosing to vote, um, yeah. and of course this, the statewide races in twenty twenty two will have some impact on counties down the ballot. U.S. Senate race as well as the gubernatorial race probably will um, motivate people on all sides, and it will probably give us a lot more to talk about in future editions of On Iowa Politics, but uh, let's, let's move on here and talk about another uh, topic of the day, I guess, uh, infrastructure. Uh, Iowa's Republican Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst went their separate ways on the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill earlier this week. Grassley was one of 19 Republicans to support the bill that is largely seen as a victory for President Joe Biden. Ernst opposed it in explaining his vote. Grassley said that, like any compromise, this bill isn't perfect and nobody got everything they wanted or likes. Uh, according to the senior senator, the bill includes about $4.2 billion for Iowa roads, $431 million for bridges, $227 million for clean water projects, and $65 million for broad, broadband. Um, he went on to say it's infinitely better than the House version of, of infrastructure spending. Um, but it still wasn't good enough to get Joni Ernst support. She said uh, she opposed it because the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office uh, said it would add $256 billion to the projected deficits. Um, Amy, if, if that didn't make fiscal conservative Chuck Grassley squeal, uh, why was Ernst in no? I think it comes down to um, the political calculations that they're both making. Obviously, one of them is up for re-election next year and the other is not yet. Um, and really, that's kind of, I think, where you're you're seeing that difference, maybe. Um, you know, Joni can afford to, um, you know, poo-poo a, a, a bill that's going to start building right away because she's not up for election for another four or five years, whereas, um, or three, four years, whereas Grassley is and if he he votes against something that um is popular and broadly we've seen that the infrastructure bill is generally popular then that could affect him in a race that um he hasn't decided if he's going to run yet um obviously but it, it could definitely play a role in the calculation and you and i sat in on ashley hinson's call this morning where we asked her if she planned to to vote for that um as it's coming back to the house and she's very cautious right now. She's, I don't think she's saying, I don't know if you get a sense that she's not planning to vote for it um, or if she might be swayed one way or the other, but it seemed like she had similar, similar concerns to Ernst um, in that um, she wants to turn off the Washington spending spigot. Yeah, the spending spigot is on my bingo card now. Um, 
it's a, <laughs> she uses that term every time we hear her speak. But yeah, yeah I guess if I was betting today, I would probably say she's a no. But she yeah. uh, she was very careful not to stake out a position one way or the other this morning. Um, Tom, uh, a lot of folks who, a lot of groups that typically back Republicans, I'm thinking like construction industry, farm commodity groups, uh, utilities, have all thrown this, their support behind the infrastructure bill. Um, and, and I'm curious, like in the Quad Cities, what you're hearing from people there uh, on on this, do, do they see a need, I mean, not only commodity groups and industry groups, but city leaders, uh, I assume they're backing uh, these projects when you talk about roads and bridges and, and uh, clean water and broadband that there's, as Amy said, pretty broad spread, broad support for this. Yeah, so quad, as you talked about, so Quad City leaders, like a majority of Americans, are happy to see um, the investment in the nation's uh, aging infrastructure. Um, it's an investment they say will allow um, the uh, the By Street region to advance several large, important regional um, infrastructure projects uh, and goals, um, including. Uh, making long overdue upgrades to uh, the Mississippi River uh, locks and dams that farmers rely on to move grain to export markets. Um, as you've written about, many of the locks and dams on the upper Mississippi River are well beyond their 50-year design life, can't accommodate modern tows. Um, and, you know, in addition to facilitating the movement of somewhere between $230 billion worth of cargo a year, um, the, the inland waterway system supports more than uh, half million jobs. So, you know, local leaders see this as um, as as an investment in um, in in local jobs and and local economies and industry. Um, the uh, executive director of the bi-state um, regional commission, that's the Quad Cities Metropolitan Planning Organization, that's responsible for um, programming federal infrastructure dollars. Um, she's previously said that, you know, infrastructure is vital to retaining and attracting um, investments and that a, um, a multi-year bill like this would provide stability for um, projects and programs um, to, um, to, to move those goals forward. Um, you know, they, they don't already have that money spent, um, but the commission recently outlined I think it was like $5 billion worth of transportation projects over the next 30 years for road, bridge, transit, trail, and, and other transportation projects that are eligible for federal funding. Um, a new Interstate 80 bridge over the Mississippi River, um, further improvements to the Interstate 74 corridor, and a, a continued push for a decades-long effort to bring passenger rail service from um, Chicago to the Quad Cities are among them. So right now, what I'm hearing the view from Quad City leaders um, is that, um, you know, this is a, a, a welcome investment that they hope means that they can finally um, push some of those um, big ticket projects um, over the finish line. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Amtrak Joe uh, can deliver passenger rail to Iowa. Um, uh, Todd, uh, Chuck Grassley hasn't said if he's running for re-election, uh, 
But as my uh, friend Art Cohen says, he's raising money, issuing blanket warnings about socialism, and is not saying whether he will run, which suggests he is. Uh, as Amy said, Ernst won't, Ernst won't face the voters until 2026 when this vote is forgotten, and perhaps uh, Iowans are enjoying those better roads and bridges and improved internet connectivity. How big a part do you think that played in their respective decisions? Oh, I, I think it it played a pretty big part in Grassley's decision to vote yes. I don't. I think if he was in the middle of his term, this would have been something that he would have said was too big, too expensive, full of boondoggles, you know, spigots. <laughs> the spending spigot. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that was a major consideration. It is, as Amy said, a popular bill. Infrastructure in general is popular with, with voters. I mean, everybody likes roads that are not full of potholes and bridges that aren't going to collapse and, and all of those sort of things. And so, you know, particularly in Iowa, where we have a bridge issue, where, where you know, the scary stories come out every year about how we have like the first or second or third most structurally deficient bridges in the country. So, uh, which sounds scary, but a lot of those are on, you know, uh, you know, scarcely traveled areas out in the, on the countryside, but still, if you're the one going across it, when it fails, you, you really, <laughs> you don't, you're not, you know, it doesn't matter where it's at. You're you know, in, in trouble. So yeah, I, I, I do think that election year politics or any, you know, it is a great mystery whether he's running. I mean, it's one of the great <laughs> mysteries of our time, but uh, I think he's uh, definitely, uh, definitely looking toward that as he voted for this bill. Well, it also seems like now he can turn around and oppose the, the $3.5 trillion, uh, you know, Sanders bill of, yeah. you know, that, uh, with the Green New Deal and all yeah. the soft infrastructure. He can oppose that and still keep his, uh, you know, his conservative credentials uh, and please the anti-tax and anti-spending crowd. Yeah. Um, it was nice of the Democrats to do that, to... To yes. get a bipartisan yeah. deal and then immediately give Republicans something to hang hang around their neck as uh, you know ridiculously large spending. Well, so you know, and and given Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi's uh, stance that they're not going to take up the the infrastructure bill until the Senate passes the the, the larger three point five trillion dollar uh, spending plan, which doesn't look like a, a sure thing in the Senate. I guess we really don't know if we're going to get an infrastructure week yet or not. Um, yeah. You know, it, it certainly looks more certain than it did for the past four years, but um, it's, you know, don't, don't count your bridges and <laughs> until they're repaired. Before they've I guess. Collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The bridge between the house and the, yeah. <laughs> the so bridge to nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Save them for your article headlines. So uh, yeah, I think ultimately uh, the House will probably pass it, whether they get the three point five trillion or not. I just eventually those election considerations are going to yeah. come come into play, and I know you know AOC and some of those folks are going to be unhappy with that, but uh, I would anticipate that that's going to happen at some point. Yeah, I, I think perhaps there's going to be a lot of talk of, about, you know, the don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and half a loaf is better than, you know, 
no bread at all and all those sorts of political cliches that we know. But um, there's a lot of truth in them when you're facing re-election. Um, so, yeah, I, I expect that one way or another it will get through the House, but um, it may take a while yet. Christmas break will be delayed. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along here. Uh, supervisors in six Iowa counties, Adams, Mills, Hardin, Cedar, Jasper, and Madison, have voted to make their jurisdictions gun sanctuaries to keep law enforcement from enforcing state or federal laws that may be viewed as infringing on gun rights. However, at least two county boards have declined to take similar action. The Hamilton County Board said it wouldn't consider making a county, the county a gun sanctuary, calling it symbolic, legally questionable, and likely unenforceable. Amy, the Blackhawk County Supervisors also declined to create a two-way mm -hmm. sanctuary. Um, what was uh, their reasoning there? So basically, Blackhawk County is, is pretty much just as blue as the other urban counties, um, but you do have one Republican county supervisor. Um, that'd be Dan Trump, the former police chief. He's the chair of the commission. So he brought this, you know, forward after the Blackhawk County Republicans made a resolution saying they were going to come to the county supervisors and try to push it. I think even they knew that this was the Quixotic stance, however you pronounce it. <laughs> the, the, I know how to write it, right? Anyway, they knew that it was futile, right? Um, but they wanted to, you know, bring it up and at least try to, you know, sway some people's minds. Um, so they're bringing up things like, you know, the, there's at least four bills, um, two of which have passed the House but haven't gotten into the Senate, um, two of which have only been introduced in the House, um, that would do things like, you know, extend the waiting period or ban certain semi-automatic guns, um, things like that. So they're worried that if, you know, these federal laws um, or bills become law, then um, states and counties and cities are going to have to enforce them and they would prefer them not to. So this is sort of, um, you remember the sanctuary cities um, with immigration years ago. This is sort of a contrast to that on the Republican side. Um, uh, and being that Blackhawk County had four Democrats and only one Republican, um, this died for a lack of seconds. So everybody got their say, but ultimately at the end of the day, it wasn't even considered because it wasn't discussed. So I think if you're seeing, you know, numbers of Republicans grow in in more years, if you're seeing them maybe elect a couple more Republicans to the county supervisors, maybe that changes. Right now, it's not going to. Tom, <laughs> uh, most of the sanctuary counties are rural, uh, small populations. Uh, Blackhawk is the only urban county I know of where this has been discussed by supervisors. Quad Cities is having gun issues of another sort, too many shootings. Um, also, I think that's the case here in Lynn County. Um, probably in most counties, there's too many shootings, if there are any. Um, so I'm guessing that creating a gun sanctuary isn't among the solutions Quad City would be considering. And I think they've asked Governor Reynolds for help from the state, and I just wonder what's happening there. Yeah, so um, you're correct. Um, there has been no discussions that I've heard that I'm aware of about um, creating a, a gun sanctuary city um, in the Quad Cities. Um, as you mentioned, shootings have sadly seemingly become a, a, a you know almost 
daily occurrence um, here in Davenport and the rest of the Quad Cities. So the conversation uh, here is focused largely on um, ways to reduce gun crimes, to enforce current gun laws, um, to speed investigations and prosecutions, um, as well as violence intervention. Um, and, and so again, with the, the surge in, shoot, in shootings, not heard a word about efforts to keep law enforcement from enforcing state or federal laws uh, around um, firearms for that very reason. Um, at the same time, it's worth pointing out that I've also not heard of efforts to enact local gun reform or gun control measures. Um, the focus lar 